This episode of Beyond the Bottom Line is brought to you by the Program on Entrepreneurship at the Yale School of Management, where we're educating students for business and society. Um, so welcome to this week's edition of Beyond the Bottom Line. Today, we are super excited to have here at Yale, Brendan Kennedy, who is the co-founder of Privateer Holdings, as well as the CEO of Tilray. Brendan, welcome back to Yale SOM. Um, We're so excited to have you here. Would love to first kind of step back a little bit, maybe to your pre-Yale SOM days and hear a little bit about what motivated you to come to the school and a little bit about your experience while you were here. Sure. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Uh, I grew up in San Francisco and um, went to Berkeley, studied architecture, uh, and then went to the University of Washington to study civil engineering. And I wrote uh, software um, while I was there. And I had been an entrepreneur uh, twice before I came to Yale. I'd been a founder of, of two companies. Um, both had um, uh, very small exits, um, but exits nonetheless. And I found myself um, uh, being 30, 31, 32, um, and had been a CEO uh, founder twice. And at, at that point in 2002, it was really hard uh, to find a job. Um, most people don't want to hire uh, someone who's been a CEO uh, twice and a, and a founder. Um, and so I had to I had to reinvent myself. And uh, because of my background not being in business, um, I thought that it was it would be a good time to go to uh, graduate school. And so applied uh, in two thousand two and, and started uh, at SOM in two thousand three. And I, I was a little bit older than uh, the rest of my class. And I, ha- I was I was really focused on what I thought I needed to learn in order to, be- to in order to be a better entrepreneur, a better founder, uh, a better CEO. And so I took uh, I took pretty different classes when when I was here, um, focused on things that would make me a better leader. Yeah, that is one of the pieces of advice I give to students while they're here: kind of step outside of your comfort zone and mm-hmm. take classes in those places where you have holes, or take classes and those places that are kind of unique to Yale while you're here at Yale um, because you're here as a student and a scholar as well as, you know, somebody who's trying to change paths and it's a unique opportunity. So so you graduate from the School of Management, you go out and you work for SVB. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what you learned through that and um, how you found the position in the first place? I think we tend to get people who are listening to this who are potential founders, potential students, and, you know, hopeful entrepreneurs or venture capitalists. So would love to hear a little bit about how you you made that entree into SVB. I was I was recruited by a Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and they were they were looking for a founding team, a, a group of founders to start uh, a new subsidiary. And and so for me it was it offered up a lot of uh, interesting opportunities. One um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank really um, owns sort of that venture capital banking niche, um, and and they're the largest player in that in in that relatively small small niche. Um, and it it enabled me to build a network of founders and entrepreneurs, but also investors. You know, I I talked to you know a lot of partners at, at um, venture capital firms while while I was there, and the three of us showed up. Um, 
uh, for the first day of our first day of work, um, 2005-ish, 2006. And we, we essentially were tasked with creating a new subsidiary and, and built it over the course. I was there for five years, built it from, you know, the three of us to about 125 and, and from zero clients to 3,000 uh, venture capital-backed startups and uh, venture capital firms. And it, it, it was a great job in that I talked to founders and, and engineers, um, CEOs, uh, all day long, every day, about about some product or some company that they thought was going to uh, impact the world in, in some way, um, and and I, that's what I loved about it. Is sort of I sometimes I described that job as having a a crystal ball uh, that enabled me to see you know the products and technology and companies that that would become you know commonplace two years into the future. Um, but I, I had this little glimpse into what all these different companies were were working on, uh, and I saw pitches all day long. Um, and it was a it was a really interesting opportunity, and a great place, um, a, a great place to be while I was looking for what my next venture was going to be, and enabled me to be you know entrepreneurial, but within a public company. We, we were doing a startup. Except the the fun part about it was you didn't have to worry about a whole bunch of different things that startup CEOs and founders have to worry about. We didn't have to worry about payroll or feeding or, your family. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we didn't have to worry about payroll or marketing or legal. Like we had all that, yeah. uh, and so I really enjoyed that opportunity, and uh, it gave me a lot of time to think about what I would do next. So talk about then that transition from that to privateer. You go out, you raise what is one of the first funds from. Groups like Founders Fund, $120 million. Can you talk a little bit about that process and um, how you were able to convince so many people to give you so much money at that point in time on an industry that was still incredibly nascent and laden with all the regulatory risk? Yeah, a, a couple different things. You know, we in 2000, May of 2010, I saw a, a technology company from the medical cannabis space in California. Uh, I saw a pitch and, and met a team, and that was really my first exposure to the cannabis industry. And my uh, two partners and I spent a year going around the world uh, learning about the cannabis industry. Really, I sometimes describe it as boots-on-the-ground, old-fashioned research and due diligence and, and learning through talking to people because uh, there was no data. There was there was no information. There was no industry and so you couldn't, you couldn't sit behind a desk and, and use Google to do your research. Yeah. Uh, and so we we flew around and went into the redwoods of Northern California and Southern Oregon and Colorado and dirt roads in British Columbia, uh, Blue Mountains, Orange Hill in Jamaica, you know, eight licensed producers producers in Israel. I think in a, in a week I did 125 coffee shops in Amsterdam, just learning how do how do these different supply chains work? How do these different markets work? What's legal? What's not? Um, and talking to to growers and processors and retailers and patients and pharmacists and physicians and lawyers and activists and political campaigners around around the world. And I built this network, or we built this network of of people around the world who fed us information over the last nine years. And in many ways, that due diligence was some of the best um, was one of the best investments we've made in the last nine years. So. That's that's how we researched it originally. Um, uh, originally, our thesis was that we were building a venture capital fund. Um, 
what we what we realized about a year in was that, and before we had raised any money, was that we we a venture capital fund or, or a private equity fund wasn't the right way to do this. And so um, you, you use fund in your your question, but we never we don't have a fund. You know, yeah. we we describe ourselves as a private equity holding company. We've raised capital in that holding company by by selling shares in it, and we use that capital the same way a fund would. Um, but we don't have that seven year, you know, seven, eight, ten year fund life constricting us because um, you know, we developed a thesis around what we thought was going to happen, but what we couldn't predict was when. Uh, and so um, the the structure that we devised um, enabled us to have the flexibility to invest in companies, buy companies, create our own companies um, without uh, the the constraints of a, of a typical PE or, or VC fund. So other orgs that you see out there right now, I think you mentioned Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, I think this is such an interesting structure for some of the issues that you're seeing right now around the time that it's taking companies to go public across several industries. Are you seeing any other funds holding companies, private equity firms emerging that look or have a similar structure to what you developed? There there aren't a whole lot. I mean, Berkshire's one. Um, the... I think it's the Liberty Media group of companies have something similar. There's a there's a handful of companies. Um, you know, the the private equity holding company structure, um, it we sort of lucked onto that, you know, through luck we we came upon, stumbled upon that particular structure. And it was it was the best decision we made um back back then because it um, it enabled us to have a lot more flexibility, and, and that's really what we needed in um, in an industry that was rapidly evolving like the global cannabis industry. So you have this very particular special set of knowledge that you've gotten by boots on the ground, hard work, lots of travel, talking to a 1,000 people. You go out, you have $120 million, basically, of powder, um, can you talk a little bit about those first few decisions around Leafly and Marley and, you know, how did you make that first choice um, and what went into that process for you? Yeah, the, the, our, our first round of capital, we raised $7, $7 million. Okay. Um, second round, we raised um, a little over 75 And then our third round... Um, was I think 130, 140. So, mm-hmm. so total we've raised about at Privateer have raised about 225 million. I think is the is the number out there. We'll, we'll blame Fortune or Forbes. For yeah, bad data on that. Um, <laughs> and so we the first seven million, um, we were really nervous about the lack of data, and so we we actually bought a company. Uh, we bought Leafly first. Um, we liked the. Uh, aesthetic. We liked the ability to collect data, and and we bought it without any. You know, it it, it wasn't making revenue. It didn't have a whole lot of traffic, but we we liked the idea, and we thought we could collect a lot of really interesting data. For we, those people who don't know, what is Leafly? Yeah, so so Leafly started as a essentially as a strain database. What what are these different? Um, by strain, I mean. Uh, Genetics. Uh, some people use the word cultivar. Um, 
meaning a, um, a genetic breed of, of cannabis, just like in tomatoes, you have lots of different tomatoes. There's lots of different strains of, of cannabis, over 4,000 um, that we track on Leafly. And in 2010, the interesting thing we saw was that the people were really interested in you know, what's the difference between you know strain A versus strain B, um, and how how are different consumers using those different um, strains? So is, is someone using uh, strain A to go to sleep and strain B uh, for uh, for epilepsy um, uh, to reduce the number of seizures? Uh, and so. We think of it originally as a strain database. That was that was its original uh, functionality, a place to crowdsource uh, data on on cannabis uh, products. Um, that's what it started with. We built a content team um, that has educated people around cannabis, and, and still have a robust team there um, that's been doing a lot of work on some of the U.S. vaping issues lately. Um, and and then there's a, a a portion of the site that's focused. Uh, if if the strains are what, there's a, a focus of the site that's on an app that's focused on where. So, what are the products and where can I find them? And so I, I think there's today I, I should know, but I don't know. There's, I would my guess would be four thousand retail locations around the world listed on Leafly that sell or supply. You know, medical cannabis or adult-use cannabis uh, products in uh, in the U.S. and in Canada and Germany and in countries around the world that have legalized medical cannabis. And then talk a little bit about some of those other earlier brands that you either incubated or invested in. Yeah, so so Leafly was first, um, and uh, had raised some capital prior to that. Um, and you had had a group of investors that really wanted us to just focus on Leafly. Um, and we were presented with an opportunity uh, in 2013 to uh, invest in companies that were applying for federal licenses in Canada. And, and we had seen regulatory programs around the world and it focused on medical cannabis. And we really liked the, the Canadian framework. And so... After doing research, we we tried to find a company to invest in Canada into in Canada and couldn't couldn't find a company uh, that we we liked in the management team or strategy that we liked, and so we went back to the regulator, Health Canada, which is FDA in Canada, and uh, and asked them if we could create our own company, and they said have at it, and so we did. We we created Tilray from scratch. Um, you know, started it with six uh, six Americans back in 2013. Applied for a license, built a facility, uh, put plants in, and started shipping product to patients. And today, um, you know, today it's a public company. We have about 1,400 um, 1,400 employees around around the world, um, and we've raised. Uh, gosh, uh, I should know. Close to um, close to seven hundred million dollars at at Tilray. That's incredible. So, talk about that transition from the investor side of the table to the operator side, and particularly to such a large and rapidly growing company. Yeah, um, you know, we Tilray at Tilray, we're we're really pleased that we have been. And in general, across Tilray and, and Privateer, we're pleased that we've been pioneers in this industry, right? That's that's how we think about ourselves. Um, and we, 
you know, we were, we were some of the first investors in this industry. Um, you know, when we first told people, you know, we, we really managed reputational risk. We had to tell our friends and our family that, hey, I'm going into the cannabis or we're going into the cannabis industry. We had to tell, you know, we, we did a whole bunch of meetings in, in San Francisco and, and, you know, up and down Sand Hill Road where we just told people that we knew, hey, look, we're, we're going into the cannabis industry and just sort of managing how people were going to talk about what we were doing because we were worried, we were really worried about being un, unemployable um, and managing our own reputations. And, and that really actually helped us. Um, you know, we, um, we, were, we were strategic in the investments that we were making and the, and the companies that we were creating. Um, you know, of the... Of the first uh, 20 companies licensed in Canada, we were the last to go public. Um, but we were pioneers in other ways in, in that, you know, I think we were the first, in the first 10 licensed, the first to have a license outside of Canada with our, our license to cultivate medical cannabis in, in Portugal. We were the, Tilray was the first company to legally export medical cannabis from Canada or from North America, first to import it into the EU, Africa, Latin America, Australia, first to have a Health Canada-approved clinical trial, first to have a majority woman-led uh, board of directors. Kudos to that, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, my, you know, I, I handpicked that that group. Um, uh, if you're... If you're going to change the world and change society, um, you need women on your side. And and it's really been a differentiating factor, um, especially around things like uh, ending prohibition. Um, and so that was a, it was a conscious decision that I made and I picked them and they're independent, but um, it's been an important facet in, in who we are as a, as a company. Um, you know, we, all the other, all of our competitors in Canada were public on the CSE or TSXV or TSX, and uh, we we did some sort of test the waters pre-IPO meetings back in 2017 and 2018, and um, a few months in, decided um, that we were going to do a, a U.S. IPO. Um, and uh, that was really at the urging of some, you know, long-only U.S. blue-chip uh, mutual fund-type investors um, in New York and Boston who said that they wanted a U.S. gap uh, uh, reporting company. All, all the ones in Canada are IFRS, um, which leads to some really strange accounting around biological assets uh, and inventory. And then they wanted someone regulated by the SEC. And so uh, once we decided we were going to do U.S., um, you know, we had been thinking that we might find a CEO, recruit a CEO. But to, to bring a CEO into a company, you know, six months or a year before an IPO, especially to do something that's never been done before. You know, no cannabis company had, had gone public on the U.S. exchange. It, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tall ask. Um, and so we got to the point where my partners said, you know, Brendan, this has to be you. Um, and and I, I, was, I was slowly getting to that point anyway where it, it, we just couldn't find someone crazy enough to take a cannabis company public on NASDAQ. And so uh, that, was a, that was a role that uh, 
uh, I guess I, I, I was somewhat uniquely qualified to, to fill. So you would... Cohen as your first? Who did you have as your first bank? Cowan. Cowan. So our, yep. our U.S., we had two banks on our IPO, uh, investment banks. Uh, Cowan, um, which which had been early into cannabis, certainly one of the earliest banks from the U.S. side. And then we had uh, BMO Bank of Montreal that, that did some work uh, with uh, IPO investors in Canada. And question regarding now you have kind of the standard set of blue chip investors in there as well, or analysts following you. Do you think that that was a kind of bottoms up, they're hearing from their private client customers, they're hearing from, what what motivated them to make the decision that this was the right thing to start following and being engaged in, do you think? All all of the above. You know, I I take some, um, I feel like I'm somewhat humble and there aren't a whole lot of things I'll take credit for, but I do take some credit for forcing some of the investment banks to pay attention to to this industry. Um, and they they heard it from their private um, private clients, their their um, private wealth clients. Um, they got jealous of some of the other investment banks that were doing work in the industry and and saw the writing on the wall, you know, knew that this was going to be it's rare that you see an entire global industry emerge overnight, uh, seemingly overnight. I've been doing this for nine years. It's not overnight, but seemingly overnight. And so they had to start paying attention. So so we used Cowan and BM, BMO uh, on our IPO in, in July of 2018. And we, we did a, a convert in October of 2018 that, um, that involved uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, BAML, um, and they, there was no chance they would have been involved in our IPO, which was really only four or five months, four, I guess, four months earlier. And, and so I took some, I'm proud of the fact that we, we have gotten those large U.S. You know, bulge bracket investment banks over, over the line. I think there's a lot of investors that, that we've gotten over the line too. There's still, I'm still working on some, um, but I, you know, there's, there's large New York, Boston, um, uh, you know, investors that manage you know, tens or f- if not hundreds of billions of dollars that I've met with a dozen times. And when they make their first investment in this industry, it will be with us. Um, they're just not quite there yet. At some point, at some point, they'll have to be, yeah. um, but they're not quite there yet. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about the unique regulatory environment because I'm not sure that everybody who listens to this really understands some of the complexity around the banking and and selling product that's grown in one area in a particular state. So just as quickly as you can, give a broad overview of some of the regulatory constraints that you're facing now and how you think that's going to change in the next two years and five years. Sure. Yeah. So um, maybe I'll speak really quickly about the past and and compare that to today and then uh, internationally and then the U.S. So so internationally, uh, in 2010, there were 15 countries in the world that had legalized medical cannabis and zero that had legalized adult use. Fast forward to today, 41 countries in the world that had legalized um, have legalized medical cannabis and two Uruguay and Canada that have legalized cannabis for adult use. I think we'll see four more by the end of 2020. Uh, that legalized for adult use. And I think we get 
The question is, uh, I don't know if it's two years or five years, we get to 10 countries that legalize for adult use. I think we get, in five years, we get to 80, uh, 80 plus that will legalize medical cannabis internationally uh, for, uh, for medical. Um, that's, that's sort of where the international market is going. In terms of the U.S., in, in 2010, there were 15, kind of 50, 15 states. Um, so it was 15 international, 15 states at the same time. Um, 15 states in 2010 that had legalized medical cannabis, zero that had legalized adult use. Today, there are 33 states that have legalized medical cannabis and 11 that have legalized for adult use. I think, um, I think we'll see somewhere... Uh, somewhere around eight new medical states in the next 18 months and four to five new adult use states. I think we'll see a couple of states legalized for adult use by not going through um, the uh, sort of ballot initiative process, uh, which will be fascinating. Um, and so I, I think we're seeing rapid changes uh, in, in the U.S. today, there's still this conflict conflict between federal and state law. Um, there's some clarity on an annual basis around medical cannabis, but there's a, a distinct conflict between adult use and, and federal law. Can you talk a little bit about that and what problems that creates for, in particular? Yeah, there's all sorts of problems. Commerce or um, banking. You know, so none of this product can't um, uh, cross state lines. So, so you have these supply and distribution chains that are contained within each state. There really aren't any other products that are like that. Where you know, imagine if um, you know, imagine if Anheuser Busch had to grow their hops, wheat, malt, and barley inside of every state where they sold you know, Budweiser. It's 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 a logistics nightmare. Um, and you, you could say that for, you know, that's just beer, but you could say that for any other you know, pharmaceutical product. Um, it, it just makes it very complicated. Um, so that's that's one huge issue. Um, I think I think cannabis will cross state lines over the next, you know, five years from now. Um, certainly we move it internationally, medical cannabis, uh, around the world today, and, and that's getting easier and easier from a medical perspective. Um you know, there are a couple of other issues. Uh, one is around banking. So uh, through AML, anti-money laundering, and BSA, Bank Secrecy Act, there are a lot of challenges for companies in the cannabis industry to, to, to bank uh, the way that normal companies do. Um, there's a couple of different acts um, in Congress, or bills in, in Congress today. Um, one is the... Uh, Safe Banking Act, which is, is has bipartisan sponsors uh, and has support of the major banks in the U.S., and that would allow uh, medical cannabis and adult-use cannabis companies to have legal access to banking um, and wouldn't... Um, the banks are scared of having their charters or fine, you know, suffering fines um, from regulators uh, for banking companies in this industry. <clears throat> and so... Um, Safe banking is is one thing that I'm actually optimistic about from a federal perspective over the next 12 months. <clears throat> and then the other is uh, the States Act, which would uh, essentially uh, prohibit the federal government from, from going after uh, companies that are legally operating in the medical cannabis or adult use cannabis space. So next month, the Canadian government is lifting restrictions on cannabis-infused food and drinks. Um, roughly a year after restrictions were lifted on the sale of LEAF. Uh, what opportunities do you think this presents? 
both for your companies and maybe for just companies that are entering into the industry for the first time? Sure. So in, in Canada, we just celebrated um, the one-year uh, anniversary of cannabis legalization. Uh, that was October 17th, uh, so a, a year ago uh, last week. Um, was was the start of um, adult use legalization in, in Canada. Uh, the first sale took place. Um, and then 60 days from um, October 17th this year, uh, so roughly, um, I think it's December 16th uh, of 2019, we'll, we'll see a whole new um, set of products uh, become available. So uh, historically... Flour, pre-rolls, um, uh, you know, essentially consumable edibles, uh, consum- consumable oils, uh, drops and things like that, tinctures uh, have been illegal in Canada. But other form factors that you would typically see in a U.S. state, a beverage, uh, a chocolate, a cookie, a mint, have not been illegal. And so um, in, in Canada, we have uh, essentially two... Uh, two areas of focus. We have the Tilray brand that is very pharmaceutical, very medical. Everywhere else in the world outside of Canada is available in a pharmacy with a prescription from a doctor, often covered by insurance companies. We have another uh, group of companies uh, and brands and products under High Park uh, that's focused on adult use. And so uh, we will launch a number of new brands and number of new products under our existing brands um, uh, in December. Uh, we have a, a joint venture uh, with uh, AB InBiv, Anheuser Bush. Um, with John's Labatt's. Uh, yes, that's right. And so we have a joint venture with them uh, focused on beverage, uh, that beverages that contain cannabinoids. Uh, and so we will we'll launch uh, those products. Um, you know, that joint venture has its own CEO and its own team. We'll launch those products in uh, December and, and then launch um, uh, a dozen or so other other products, um, you know, chocolates, beverages, or chocolates, cookies, mints, um, things, things like that. Great. So you're seeing more and more, certainly from the time that you guys started this, more and more capital moving into the cannabis industry. Can you talk about the competitive environment for deals and how do you see this evolving over the next five to 10 years as the legislative environment changes in the U.S. and also internationally? Well, I mean, to to say the last year has been uh, volatile in this particular industry would be, I mean, a severe understatement. Um, And I think that certainly the largest companies in the industry today um, tend to be Canadian companies because uh, you know we don't have to worry about things like banking. It's federally legal. We have federal licenses. That's why we were able to do an IPO on Nasdaq. Um, I think I think right now we're going through um, we're 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 at a point of inflection and we're starting to see uh, a lot of volatility. Certainly over the past four months, we're seeing some. Uh, consolidation. We're also seeing some <clears throat> dis- dissolution in that uh, it's getting harder for companies to raise money, and uh, that's that's leading them to uh, essentially run out of money. And so, I'm getting a lot of calls from essentially three sources: competitors in Canada, uh, U.S.-based companies, and then international companies. 
um, that are that are calling, looking, looking to be acquired. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there aren't a whole lot of investors deploying capital in the industry right now. And so it for us, it creates a buying opportunity. Yeah, one would think that that would be the case across so many dimensions <clears throat> of the industry just because of the way that it's set up right now on a state-to-state basis, maybe not today or tomorrow, but five years from now, ten years from now, being able to consolidate across all of the state lines and optimize your supply chain and other things. That's right. It's so early. You know, we, you know, if 40 countries, 41 countries, I believe it was for medical, sets, so you know, 40 out of 196 is 20%, right? Two out of 196 have legalized for at 1%. And so it's still really early in the growth stage of this industry. Excellent. So Massachusetts was the first state in the country to include in its marijuana legislation a a requirement to include historically disenfranchised groups. However, as of February, uh, 112 businesses have received licenses, but only nine are women-owned and two minority-owned. As the industry continues to evolve, um, how do you ensure that people of color and disadvantaged minorities succeed in this market, um, particularly those who were previously operating in the market in a different capacity? Uh, that's that's one of the biggest challenges we've seen over the last uh, over the last nine years. Um, it's also one of the it's also one of the, the characteristics that's changed the most over the last six to 12 months, which makes me optimistic. Um, you know, when, when we started, we spent a lot of time dealing with people and learning from people who were operating you know, illegally. Um, and, and they were um, amazingly willing to educate us and, and be patient with us. And you know, our, our strategy was to be was to be really nice and and really thankful and and you know, buy a lot of you know coffees and breakfasts and lunches and dinners and and um, just ask questions and and, and people were incredibly um, willing to to share with us. Um, you know, when when we were raising capital um, in 2012 and 13, 14. It, the the hardest in, investor to close was um, a you know a couple uh, a married couple that had teenage kids because they didn't they didn't want to talk to their kids about why they made this investment in a in a cannabis company and <clears throat> um, in in the early years two thousand fourteen and fifteen it was it was also hard to recruit um, it was hard to recruit. Uh, women who were mothers and had teenage children, um, and we had you know our, our VP of HR um, fit that description, uh, but she was willing to take um, take the plunge, um, and I think one of the things that's refreshing is that um, that's changed. Uh, you know, really, you know, I was talking about the investment banks earlier, but we're able to recruit a more diverse set of employees today than we ever have, uh, in the past. Um, and, and not only diverse employees, but employees from, <clears throat> from places that just never, you know, people would have never left those companies come work for us in, in the past are, um, our our VP of HR comes from Diageo. Our our general counsel she comes from Coca Cola. Uh, our operations comes from Nestle. Um, 
you know, Goldman Sachs, Starbucks, companies that, that people wouldn't have left in the past to come work for us. I do, um, I fundamentally believe that prohibition is wrong, uh, especially prohibition of cannabis. Um, and it's, it's been a, the war on drugs has been a failure um, since um, it was initiated. Prohibition's been a failure since it was initiated. You know, last year <clears throat> we arrested in the United States 650,000 Americans for cannabis possession uh, or distribution, uh, and, and disproportionately those arrested are African American and Hispanic uh, Americans who are, are arrested disproportionately and incarcerated disproportionately to other uh, ethnic groups, and so it's a it's a form of um, it's a it's a form of discrimination, um, and their lives are uh, those arrested. Their lives are are ruined. The, their families are are ruined. I think it's a huge waste of human capital, um, and and yet for a product where you know George Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama all have admitted cannabis consumption and. And yet their lives weren't ruined. They they weren't arrested. Um, and so I'm I'm hugely in favor of uh, initiatives focused on uh, one bringing people who have who've operated illicitly in the past into the industry, um, ensuring that they are enabled that that the regulations enable them to sort of come out of the shadows and into the light. I think that's I think that's important. I think that's um, that's what success looks like. Um, I think that, you know, at, 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 I've, I've pledged, um, you know, some of, some of my, uh, shares, uh, or, or some of my, um, I guess wealth to, to sort of righting the wrongs of prohibition and making sure that communities that have been harmed the most by prohibition benefit from, from legalization. And, um, I'll spend, you know, that, that's how I'm going to spend my proceeds from, from this. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's something that is, in some ways, it's disappointing that, that more, um, more groups that have been harmed by prohibition aren't benefiting from legalization. Yeah. Well, a final question, which is always one that will stump you if I've not prepared you correctly, but... Um, what is the one book that you're giving out this year as a gift? One book I'm giving out this year, and why? Uh, gosh, um, I give out I give out a lot of books. Um, I don't I don't read as much as I used to. I used to read, you know, even even while I was a student at at, at Yale at SOM, I would read you know two or three books uh, generally a week. Um, um, books I've given out lately. Um, I gave a bunch of, um, I gave a bunch of our employees, um, uh, a book called Last Call. Um, it's a little bit, it's a, maybe written 10 years ago about the end by Daniel O'Krent about the end of alcohol prohibition. Hmm. Um, really, it's sort of written at the same time as the Ken Burns prohibition documentary. Um, and I, I think it, I read it at the start of, uh, at the start of all this to help me think about, um, uh, how, uh, how, how, how the world would look after prohibition. And the, the other book, I'm going to, I'm going to probably break your rules and do two. The other totally book, one of my favorite book, uh, favorite books is, uh, along a similar vein, 
uh, but about a completely different topic is the the fish that ate the whale, the fish that swallowed the whale um, by Rich uh, Cohen um, about uh, one of my heroes, a guy named Sam Zamuri, who uh, who introduced. Uh, uh, in many ways, introduced Americans to bananas. And uh, I've had a fascination <laughs> with bananas um, throughout my career. And so um, those are those are two books I, I would give out. Well, we will have to dig into that fascination with bananas next time you come back to Yale. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us and for coming back and delighted to have you on campus. Thank you so much for having me. 